Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back. Um, welcome to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. For anyone who joined while we were um, meditating, is there anyone uh, new joining us or Trying to put an absence with your small team. Anybody on Zoom? Alright, um, if you're on Zoom, you can wave to the friends in the room. And if you're in the room, you can wave to that iPad. And for the recording, I'll just read uh, Welcome on Zoom to Larry, Bob, Brian, Daniel, Greg, Gillis. Jairus, I can't have a glass of wine. Um, Jeb, Joe, John, Lee, Marvin, Matthew, Rich, and Steve. And uh, it's our custom in the room to go around and say our names. Uh, my name is Grisha. Alex. Reese. My name is Henry. Jeff. Stephen. Richard. Matthew. My name is Cass. Ron. I'm Brad. I'm Ty. George. I'm Mike. Jack. My name is Tim. Bob. I'm Tony. Jeremy. Jim. Thank you, and I'll introduce Laura. Um, so, uh, Laura Burgess is a lay and trusted Dharma teacher in the Soto Zen tradition. She lectures and leads retreats at practice centers in Northern California. She received monastic training at Tassaram Zen Mountain Center, the first Buddhist monastery in the United States. Laura taught children for 35 years and mentored other teachers, helping to bring mindfulness practice into the elementary classrooms. Laura is active in recovery, co-founded the Sangha in Recovery program at the San Francisco Zen Center, and is the abiding teacher at Lennox House Meditation Group in Oakland. Her two children's books are Buddhist Stories for Kids and Zen for Kids. Her latest is The Zen Way of Recovery, an Illuminated Path Out of the Darkness of Addiction. So, welcome, Laura. All right, take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Having had the good fortune not only to have been born into this world as a human being, but also to have encountered the teaching of the great Shakyamuni Buddha, how can we help but be overjoyed? (laughs) Those are the words of Hakuin Zenji, a wild man and and a Zen monk and a poet. I am so happy to be here with you today. I love coming here. And um, it's a special day for me because I want to share with you this book, my my latest book, The Zen Way of Recovery, uh, because uh, a number of the talks in here are stem from talks that I've given you over the years. So this is very special for me to bring this book to you. Um, I first started coming here in 2008, and my practice and my recovery has evolved during that time. And uh, so I I would like to take this opportunity to share some excerpts from this book with you. Um, You may be in recovery, you may not. I I like to say we're all recovering from something. Uh, You know, the Buddha said that our suffering stems from uh, our craving or our attachment. In Sanskrit, tanha, which is translated as thirst, which is very convenient for those of us who are alcoholic. (laughs) And a very, very vivid um, metaphor for our suffering, the suffering that comes to us through um, the ancient twisted karma of alcoholism, which goes back in my family on both sides to Ireland. Um, So I want to say that alcohol started manifesting in my life when I was a teenager. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I was living in Juneau, Alaska, and I entered at that time what I still think of as the heart of darkness, the darkness of addiction. Um, I heard somebody say earlier, I'm I'm such a creature of habit. And uh, we all are. We're all creatures of habit. Some of our habits are life-affirming and joyful and connective with other people. 
and some of our habits uh, cut off the sunlight of the spirit. And for me, alcoholism gave me this great elation, a wonderful feeling of connection with all beings. It, it took away my shyness. It made me uh, able to connect with others. And very shortly, it started taking those things away. Alcohol started taking those things away. I had a lot of fun and a lot of kind of risky adventures uh, behind alcohol and drugs, but in Juneau, I came to one night after a night at the Red Dog Saloon. Uh, (laughs) I came to out of a blackout crawling through the snow, and that got my attention because people die that way. Uh, people die that way. They just pass. They, they they don't know what they're doing and they don't wake up. So I came back to San Francisco and I started looking for a spiritual solution and I found Zen practice, which sustained me in a very profound way. Very soon I was living in at Tassajara Zen Mountain Monastery and I love the rigor and discipline of monastic life and practiced diligently for five years. But... When I came back to the city, alcohol started creeping back into my life. And after five years of living the double life of the alcoholic, I stepped into the rooms of recovery. And I found that taking advantage of the, of the experience and the strength and the hope in those rooms, my Zen practice was able to come to life because I was no longer tethered to alcohol. I was no longer numbing myself with alcohol. I I want to read you the introduction to my book, uh, The Zen Way of Recovery, uh, because the very first, uh, the very first thing I say in this introduction is, I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. And I took that vow very early in my Zen practice. But how can I be a benefit to all beings if I'm trapped uh, in alcoholism? I really couldn't. And, and, and the, in fact, the very first words of my book are, Buddhism did not cure my alcoholism. I turned to Zen to change my life, to align myself with the Sangha, the community of Buddhist practitioners, and to find relief from the suffering of addiction. But until I opened my heart to the principles of recovery, I was cut off from the deepest sources of my own being. Now I find that Zen Buddhist practice, lived in accord with the solace of recovery, can offer a life that is full of possibilities. It is understandable that those of us who are prone to addiction turn to drugs and alcohol and other distracting behaviors to medicate the distress within. I began drinking when I was a teenager and alcohol promised to give me things I didn't have, self-confidence, an antidote to my social anxiety, and an ecstatic yes to a wide and wild life. Drugs and alcohol may be the closest thing to a spiritual experience that isn't. Over time, addiction pulled me into a downward spiral, taking away all the things that it seemed to promise in the beginning, freedom, expansiveness, peace, relief. Discouraged, but feeling that there might be another way, I stopped drinking and stepped onto the path of practice. At first, Zen helped me turn away from addiction and towards the Sangha. You have such a wonderful Sangha here, so supportive uh, to our lives, and a vital way of life. But ultimately, alcohol began to creep back into my life, and I knew that I needed to address the roots of this disease in a more direct and dynamic way. At the end of my drinking, I thought of all the gifted Buddhist teachers who could sit still for days at a time and shower us with illuminating Dharma talks, but because they were powerless over their own addictive behavior, harmed their students, and destroyed or deeply damaged their communities. In this book, I share the teachings that have been helpful to me in my own recovery, but it is not meant to take the place of a program of recovery. If you struggle with addiction, you may experience craving for a substance or an addictive behavior once you start. You might notice that your personality changes when you use or act out. You might be having blackouts, memory lapses as a result of using. You may be frustrated by the fact 
that you keep using despite negative consequences. Maybe you've tried to stop and haven't been able to. You may have been discouraged to return to your addiction again and again despite periods of abstinence. Maybe the people who care about you have tried to tell you about their concerns. Do you lie about your use of substances or food, your sexual behavior, your gambling habit? Do you reveal one side of yourself to one group of people and a very different side to others? Do you lie to family or friends about the addictive behavior of someone you care for? Do you often put your own welfare aside in favor of focusing on someone you love and their struggles with addiction? If any of these signs sound familiar to you, I strongly recommend that you find a recovery program that can directly, uh, directly address your addictive patterns rather than relying solely on Buddhist teachings to keep you sober. There you can do the work that will help you to fully engage in Buddhist practice. Um, so this book is really directed at all beings and we certainly have a lot of distractions in our culture and screen addiction is a big one now. There are 12-step programs and recovery programs for that. Uh, you know, we all rely on screens. I'm in awe of this technology, but um, it can interfere with our openness to one another when we're staring at our phones. And it you know, breaks my heart since I taught third grade for so long to see little kids crossing a street with headphones on and looking at a phone. It's just so dangerous. And so how are they going to develop an inner life while doing that? I want to share with you Chapter 17 from my book. It's called, just excerpts from it, called The Healing Power of Forgiveness. Um, because forgiveness is so important to those of us in recovery. Um, the talks that I've given here in the past, by the way, have been Buddhist talks. And when I wrote this book, I may have deal, dealt with the same themes, but adding the enrichment or the added viewpoint of recovery to them. And that's true in this, in this as well. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner is you. Louis B. Smedes. Forgiveness is the practice of softening, of gently letting go of deeply held anger and resentment. Part of our recovery is to face the harm that we've done to others and to make amends. And all human beings can do that, right? If we're going to ask for forgiveness, shouldn't we be willing to forgive? And if we're going to ask others to forgive, shouldn't we be willing to forgive ourselves? Buddha taught about suffering and about an end to suffering. The precepts, the Buddhist precepts, are a kind of medicine that heals suffering by shining a light on body, speech, and mind. One of the ten prohibitory precepts tells us, a disciple of the Buddha does not harbor ill will. To harbor ill will is to cling to and identify with the ways in which we feel someone has harmed us and to hold on to a one-sided and limited view of others. In recovery, we learn that we don't have to nurse our resentments in order to be true to ourselves. For those of us in recovery, resentment and righteous indignation are dangerous because they can lead us back to a drink or a behavior uh, that, that we want to turn away from. When we're trapped in obsessive thoughts about resentment and revenge, we can't be fully present for this moment. We can't see the person in front of us fully. We can't take responsibility for our own part in things. And we can't live our lives with the ease and joy that we long for. If we just took up the practice of forgiveness, we could enact the principles of Buddhism completely. Phan Thi Kim Phuc, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, was nine years old on June 8, 1972, when she was photographed running naked down a dusty road in her village in South Vietnam. Kim Phuc and other villagers had been accidentally napalmed by South Vietnamese planes and were fleeing for their lives. Nick Oot received a Pulitzer Prize for this iconic photograph which became a searing symbol of the war and some would say 
help turn the conscience of many Americans. Oot took the children to a hospital in Saigon where Kim Fook stayed for 14 months, receiving 17 surgical procedures. It wasn't until she was taken to a special clinic in Germany in 1982 that she was finally able to properly move again. Ten, this is 10 years later. Do you remember that photograph? Yeah. In 1996, Kim Fook spoke at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. She talked about how we cannot change the past, but we can work together to ensure a more peaceful future. A Vietnam veteran, John Plummer, who claimed to have taken part in coordinating the airstrike that injured Kim Fook, met with her and was publicly forgiven. Though it came to light later that he hadn't had a role in the airstrike, though he was active in, as a soldier in the Vietnam War, he'd been caught up in the emotion of the moment. Uh, still, the two have enjoyed a lifelong friendship that has come to, to symbolize the power of faith and forgiveness in the wake of a terrible war that deeply affected them both. Kim Fook has said that forgiveness has freed her from hatred. She wonders if the little girl that photo, in that photograph can forgive, then ask yourself, can you? Fan Thi Kim Fook was awarded the 2019 Dresden Peace Prize for her work with UNESCO and for tireless activism on behalf of world peace. Living in the realm of anger, resentment, self-pity, jealousy, fear, envy, can never give us the freedom, peace, and connection that we long for. We would do well to look closely at the way we hold on to afflictive emotions that cause suffering for ourselves and others. We can't control other people, but with practice and recovery, we learn that we can radically transform our own reaction to the world and find new ways of being. The 12th century Buddhist sage, Sanshanti Deva, asked, if we should cover the whole world with leather to protect our feet, or would it make more sense just to wear shoes? <laughs> you know, we can change the way that we react to uh, the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, right? Can we change ourselves rather than expecting the world to change to fit us? If we are carrying around a grievance right now, like a backpack full of rocks, can we apply teachings on forgiveness to our situation? Can we allow ourselves to put down this burden of grievance? Dr. Fred Luskin is the head of the Forgiveness Project at Stanford University. His scientific research on the medical and psychological benefits of forgiveness has benefited victims on both sides of the troubles in North Ireland, Northern Ireland Civil War as well as many others who've suffered from the paralyzing effects of long-held resentments. I think it's really interesting that when Fred Luskin started his research on resentment, he put an ad in the paper in, in uh, Palo Alto and it said, are you having trouble forgiving? You know, call us and join this research project. Only women responded to that. <laughs> so he thought about it, and he put it about. He put another ad. He said, "Are you holding a grudge?" And, and men responded to that. I, I don't know why. You know, you've probably heard because I've said it right in this room. This wonderful quote from Pema Chodron that holding a grudge is like eating rat poison and expecting the rat to die. <laughs> So Fred, and Fred wrote a wonderful blurb for my book. I'm so grateful to him because this chapter is based on his work. Uh, through his work, he's been able to encourage people to let go of deeply held prejudices and hatreds, helping participants see their enemies as human beings with hopes and dreams and feelings and with grief and sorrow just like their own. Henry Wordsworth Longfellow said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we could 
read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. To me, that's such a wonderful reminder of Buddhist compassion that that we can extend to all beings, even if we're in conflict with them. In his research on forgiveness, Luskin has found that forgiveness is not about, this is really important, it's not about forcing ourselves to forget painful things that have happened to us. It doesn't mean that it's fine for people to mistreat us. Forgiveness doesn't have to be a rare mystical experience. It doesn't mean that we have to reconcile with the toxic or dangerous or violent abuser. It doesn't mean denying our own experience or our own feelings. It can happen in the presence of another or in the privacy of our own heart. Forgiveness can happen in an instant or it can take a lifetime. If we have a tendency towards resentment, we forget that we're assigning that emotion to events that don't necessarily have anything to do with us. Because of past experiences, we might be on guard trying to protect ourselves from others. This can lead us to actively look for things to be resentful about without even realizing it, mapping out a world of hurt and remembered pain, like a field of landmines that are just waiting for us to step on. We forget that we have a choice about what we pay attention to and how we respond. So for example, instead of focusing on things that we resent, we could choose to focus on things we're grateful for or on the things that give us pleasure. We could focus on the precious qualities of the people we spend our lives with. We could pay attention to moments during our life every day when we felt especially helpful or helped. Uh, you know, I've taught classes at Zen Center on Buddha's Brain, that wonderful book by Rick Hansen. And, and Rick Hansen uses this phrase that I've seen a lot in brain research, which is that the brain is like Teflon for positive experiences and like Velcro for negative experiences. <laughs> and, you know, as a teacher, I could, people could sing my praises as a teacher. Oh, you're so wonderful. My daughter's thrived in your class. One person make a negative comment and I would chew on it. You know, I would have to actively put that in perspective with the other kind of feedback I was getting. Um, it's easy to see that our unresolved resentments prevent us from living fully in this moment and interfere with our ability to be of service to ourselves and others. It's easy to water the seeds of resentment. We take things personally, we're unwilling or unable to see our part in a conflict, we blame the offender for the way we feel, and we create a grievance story. This is, this is Fred Luskin's term, a grievance story. So, you know, if you're, in, if you're in conflict with someone and you find yourself telling everybody you run into your story about this grievance, even strangers in an elevator, you know, you're really reveling in that grievance story. And really, you're shoring up your own rightness in that situation <laughs> and castigating this other person who, by the way, isn't there right now. Uh, so, you know, I love this grievance story. You, you'll have conversations that go on and on in your head with this invisible person. Um, and I, so I love Fred, Fred Luskin's uh, calling that a grievance story. A grievance story that will tell to anyone who will listen. You may be carrying a painful story about a past hurt. In his book, Forgive for Good, A Proven Prescription for Health and Happiness, Dr. Luskin suggests... Allow yourself to feel this hurt right now. Let it fill your mind and body. Recognize that this feeling of pain is understandable and part of being human. Imagine that you could allow, maybe just for a little while, that painful grievance to float up into the sky. Imagine that you could let go of it and set it free, like a colorful kite dancing on the wind until it's just a speck in the sky. What would we feel like if we could do that? 
Resentment blooms when we don't notice that we've come up with a set of rules for other people that they aren't interested in following or that they may not even know about. (laughs) You don't realize that something you wished for from another person has turned into an assumption, a demand, an expectation. You might have been seeking things from others and now you're frustrated and hurt that these things haven't been provided to you. You may have taken an offhand remark too personally and now you feel betrayed. When we harbor unexpressed or unrealistic expectations and when we don't get what we think we deserve, we're in danger of turning ourselves into a victim and being trapped in corrosive and unproductive self-pity. We start asking, why me? I'm a good person. How could this happen to me? I don't deserve this. How could someone treat me this way? I think of the book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. What's even worse is when good things happen to bad people. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that. I see a lot of that happening, by the way. (laughs) When we don't have the power to make things turn out the way we want, we, we suffer. We forget that we're often powerless over events and over the reactions of other people. Why do we resist letting go of hurt, even though we sense that there may be a wonderful freedom and release in letting go? And I've given this a lot of thought, so this is what I came up with. We may cling to a resentment because we feel this is something we have power over. Uh, there was this resentment may be as comfortable as an, old shirt, as an old shirt. We might ask ourselves, is this resentment, the, resent, this is a good one. We might ask ourselves, is this resentment, this conflict, a stand-in for another time when I felt powerless and couldn't defend myself. You know, somebody might eat something, our food, out of the refrigerator, and it, it triggers something that happened long ago, and we lash at, at this person in maybe a, a really inappropriate way with the kind of force that's not right for that situation, you know? It's because we didn't stand up for ourselves in the past or weren't able to. Um, Am I afraid that if I let go of this resentment, I'll lose something precious? Something I've, I've spent a lot of time cultivating and cherishing, you know? Do I feel that if I let go of this resentment, I'm betraying myself in some way? If we think in a broader way, we may come to feel that we're bigger than our resentment and that the other person is bigger than what we've been able to see in them. We can come to understand that we don't have to be limited or defined by the ways in which we've been hurt. I think that's a pretty good definition of forgiveness, too, that we don't have to be limited or defined by the ways in which we've been hurt. So I think I'll stop there. Um, Thank you so much for your kind attention. And I I think you might see how... um, I flavored this with how important this practice of forgiveness is for people in recovery. But there's a wonderful freedom and ease for all of us if we can open ourselves up to it. Uh, You know, the Buddha gave a wonderful teaching. He said that if, if we have a small bowl of water and we put a handful of salt into it, it will be too salty to drink. But if we put that handful of salt into a rushing river... The river can absorb it and flow with it and isn't harmed by it. And he was saying, you know, that if we, if we widen our circle of compassion to include, include even those people that we have trouble forgiving, then, then, and if we, if we keep our hearts wide open, then the little things that come up every day, they're like that salt in a rushing river rather than salt in a small stagnant pool of self that we protect. You know, so if we open our hearts and widen our circle of compassion, we aren't so harmed by these uh, inevitable hurts and pains that come up in life. So the floor is open for discussion. I'd love to hear what might have come up for you around this or for people at home. Uh, And I I didn't bring my book with me, but I brought with me some postcards that Shambhala, beautiful postcards that Shambhala produced. And on the back, there's that little symbol you can point your phone at. And I, wanted to, I, wanted, I don't know how to do that myself, by the way. And I wanted 
tell you right now that if you put if you put in the code ZWR Zen Way of Recovery ZWR thirty, you can get a thirty percent discount. So if you'd like to get that book for you yourself or someone you love, that's an easy way to do it. So thank you, Jeff, for suggesting that. And I ch- I checked us out with Jeff. Do you think it'd be okay to talk about my book? So thank you. And what would you like to say? Um, Bob online has a question. So Bob, go ahead and unmute. Yes, Laura, I want to thank you for the honesty and wisdom that you've shared. The only thing is, you've reminded me how much work I still have left to do. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Hi, Bob. It was good to see you recently. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was a surprise, and thank you. It was good. <laughs> yes, Jim. Yeah. Um, I probably have an addiction to bad news about Donald Trump. <laughs> and when I can't find it, I have a little moment of <laughs> And last night I was at a, an engagement party for um, old school friend's uh, daughter. And um, the father, who is wonderfully well-spoken, has a rich mind, and is a wonderful musician, and was a great host, and he's a trumper. Um, But I realized I let it go for the evening. You know, I I, he's never opined in front of me. I think it's sort of a secret um, scandal in his life. Um, But I just thought that was interesting that because it was such a lovely, lovely event that I could just it didn't come up. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's. But I don't. I don't want to hold anything dark uh, in my heart with him. Um, but he drives everyone crazy when he gets going. Anyway, I just thought I said that. It just was an eclipse. My judgmentalism about that. Thank you so much, uh, Jim. And in terms of Trump, we could invoke the ancient phrase. This too shall pass. <laughs> Even though it's hard to believe. At the <laughs> you know, I was in a Buddhist uh, ceremony, and it, this was during Dick Cheney's time. And uh, someone said that they they had a friend who lived quite close to Dick Cheney, and that actually he was a very nice guy, and that you might want to go fishing with him sometime. And I thought, well. I don't know if you remember this. I I might go fishing with him, but I'm certainly not going hunting. (laughs) As as you recall, a friend of a friend, Dick Cheney, shot his friend in the face with buckshot, and his friend apologized for his face getting in the way. Uh, So we can um, try to open our hearts. Thank you for that, Jim. I think that's it's wonderful that your practice stepped in. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yes. For me, what resonated uh, at the beginning, the importance of working on psychological side, or in your case, recovery. Mm-hmm. For me, I wasn't particularly addicted to anything, but at some point I realized that I cannot bypass psychological work by jumping to spirituality and like this spiritual bypass thing, pretending that I'm already enlightened and separated when in reality I was in denial and ignorant of my own um, confusion, psychological misinterpreting myself and the world. And it had to be addressed through psychotherapy as a more direct way of addressing at this level because it's like there are several levels and some problems need to be addressed on the levels that exist. You can jump over and pretend that you are um, not who you are. So for me that resonated the most. Yes, thank you so much for saying that because um, I got sober in 1985 and at, at that time it was thought, oh, just practice more diligently, you know. You don't need AA, you don't need recovery, you don't need psychotherapy or yoga even at that time, unbelievably. 85, that was a long time ago. It was just thought, just practice harder, practice harder. And I thought, I can just put on a black robe and smile benignly and and spiritually bypass all the work that I've been able to do in recovery. Uh, so it's it's interesting to me that at that time I had to really c- 
convince Zen Center that recovery would be important for Buddhist practitioners. And it came to pass that, yeah, in psychotherapy was important for practitioners as well. And some of those Zen students went back to school and became therapists that were able to help others with a Zen kind of uh, helpfulness along with psychotherapy. So let's take advantage of every, you know, everything that's available to us. And we're so lucky we have the advantage of all these different paths that can flow together to, to encourage our lives. Thank you for that. Yes. I agree with what you're saying, that it takes a lot to make me me. I mean, well, frankly, I'm, I'm wearing socks that I bought during the Trump administration. They say I miss Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, but growing up in San Francisco, I was a bartender for a while, then I discovered crystal meth, and I've had many entanglements and lots of work and 12-step programs, which has benefited me. Um, I then worked in a profession for 11 years, and... I was also an avid bicyclist and rode from San Francisco to Los Angeles three times. Finally, riding in Oakland, I hit a pothole, was thrown off my bike and landed on my head. Mm. Went to a coma for a month. And I've spent the last six years recovering from that. Mm. And my speech has become somewhat normalized, but walking is still a little funky. Anyway, I think it takes a lot of different methods and different modalities. I was in therapy for at least three years and did physical therapy for three years. And I recently started coming here and I feel like spirituality and addressing that need in that way has helped tremendously. I mean, as far as my accident goes, I loved bicycling. So I don't feel like I have any any outwardly blame towards anything for that. I feel at peace with that, but I mean, I still feel a little messed up, but anyway, that's my spiel. Could you remind me of your name? Oh, my name's Ty. Ty, could we speak after sure. the group, please? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. I not only miss Obama these days, I even miss Nixon. (laughs) Nixon seemed kind of cute. Don't call that kid up. I I, I once called up my daughter, Nova, and I said, Nova, um, our friend James has tickets to go see Nixon in China at the opera. Want to come with us? You know, my, my, my wise daughter said, Mom, there's only one thing I hate more than opera, and that's Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I enjoyed the opera. It's a beautiful <laughs> Yes, Jeff. Um, thank you for sharing that, Tommy. I was addicted to crystal meth also, and um, and went into recovery. And appreciate the uh, 12-step program, partly because it does address the human, per- the personal part of it, the psychological, you know, to be able to humble yourself to say, you know, my, my name's so-and-so, and I'm an addict, and, you know, to work the steps and things. Um, and at the same time, Carl Jung apparently uh, wrote letters back and forth with uh, founders of AA, and he's, he had worked with addicts, and he said, probably nothing less than a spiritual conversion uh, will get somebody sober. Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciated that. I think uh, spiritual practice is a wonderful supplement therapy. So my question is, uh, it seems like, uh, I mean, we all suffer. Um, I mean, that's the first noble truth. And alcoholics have what they talk about this hole in their our heart. Yes. Yeah, that we you know uh, substitute you know medicating ourselves for you know an attempt to uh, reach attain some kind of spiritual unity or something. And mm-hmm. Don't you think uh, uh, 
addicts and alcoholics just sort of have more of the human experience or more poignantly? I, Not to be special, but just yeah, amplify. I, I, I'm not sure, but I do feel um, among my fellow addicts and alcoholics in recovery, the reason we need recovery and practice is because of a hypersensitivity that we medicated. And also, by the way, my generation went through the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War, and I, I, I almost wonder if we weren't traumatized by those things in a way that wasn't addressed by the adults around us and that we medicated ourselves because of that, you know. Um, Jeff used this phrase, the hole inside of us. I've heard so many people say this, that they felt they had a hole in the chest. Some people call it a God-sized hole. Uh, and by the way, as a Buddhist, when I came in recovery, I didn't have any trouble with the word God because I was desperate enough that I just wanted to do whatever the people in the rooms of recovery were doing to stay sober. We have a phrase in uh, Zen that a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. And I, I came to feel that the word God is not God. It's, 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 it's a word that points at a mystery that I can't begin to understand. And at the end of my drinking, I was sitting in the classroom at San Francisco State because I'd gone back to school to get a teaching credential. You reminded me of this moment, Jeff. I was sitting in that classroom and I was 35 years old and I was just sick from the night before. And I had this moment of clarity that in spite of many spiritual opportunities in my life, I had a wonderful Buddhist teacher, I traveled the world, I had a beautiful daughter, that I, I'm sitting in a classroom where I had sat when I was 18 years old and I suddenly felt I'd made no spiritual progress in my life, despite all my being able to sit still for seven days at a time in a Zen retreat. And something in the depths of my being called out, please, please help me. And I had no idea what or who I was asking for help. And I got out of that um, classroom and I went into the hallway. They used to have these things called... uh, phone booths. <laughs> there was a phone booth with a phone book. And I called a recovery program and, and went to a meeting and I have not... I'm one of those lucky people that haven't had to take a drink since. That was a conversion experience. Sitting in that classroom and turning my will and my life over to a power that I did not understand. And in the rooms of recovery what I found was that our collective intention to stay sober is far more powerful than my t- puny little you know, desire to stay sober. I can tap into the energy and commitment and intention of which I'm doing with you right now. Our intention to practice, to live a wholesome life, to go in appropriate direction. We, we, something happens limbically. And I, I, it probably happens on Zoom too, but it's so nice to be in person, you know, where we can tap into one another's energy as we go forward. Yes. I, I'm reminded of something that I learned in uh, reportedly that Sri Dayamasa, who was the person who succeeded Paramahansa Yogananda in the Self Realization Fellowship tradition, uh, that someone asked her once, uh, why are people become addicts, why is there addiction? And her response reportedly was that you cannot deny the soul's desire for bliss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my journey of addiction has run a gamut of all sorts of, of, of exterior addictions, uh, codependent addiction, relationship addiction, um, and um, the, the difference is that thirst, that hunger that's never quenched, and the thirst that comes from knowing that I'm loved unconditionally that is. So, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a, a good note to end on. Is it about time? Yeah. Well, thank you all. And um, 
Larry, welcome. Larry put in the chat that he was new. So welcome to GBF. I hope you'll keep coming back to us over there. And, um, yeah, oh yeah, Larry was excited. And I uh, put into the chat a number of links for the people online, um, but we have announcements here. So, uh, who is Cass? Or who's our host today? Sorry. Hi, Cass. Tony's the host. I'm the host. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Please stay and enjoy the company of the saga. There are vegan and gluten-free uh, refreshments and hot water for tea. So if you take a cup, just put it in the sink afterwards and I'll take care of it. We're, I'll be going around with the Donna Bowl to accept contributions to cover our expenses. Your generosity is appreciated. And uh, it's... They use the donations, please range from 10 to $20 to help us on immediate expenses. These include honorarium for our speakers, this beautiful center, a monthly, uh, no, we don't do this, a quarterly newsletter mailed mostly to people in prison. Um, there is a newcomer sign up sheet on the Prendenza. If you wish to be included and receive our song and membership directly, please sign up and include contact information you wish to share with the group. Some members go out for lunch after the meeting. Everyone is welcome to join us. The group meets at the front door around 12.30. Thank you. Uh, yep. Yeah. Well, I was trying to find my, uh, about the retreat. So after three long years, we're finally going to have a retreat uh, in October at Land of the Medicine Buddha. It's October 20th, 21st, and 22nd. And all the information is on our website under retreats. Uh, Donald Rockford will be our teacher. Uh, and let's see what else. Uh, so we're out of uh, single rooms, but we still have double rooms. And uh, the price for double occupancy is $4.95 per person. You get your own private bathroom, all the linens, all the towels are provided. They have a pool, they have a beautiful grounds, and uh, great <laughs> vegetarian food. Uh, it's very different than Vajrapani, I think. Uh, so if you're interested, come see me during the break, or the uh, social hour, and uh, if you're interested, I'll take your name down, because we only have probably have about maybe eight or nine spaces left. Sounds wonderful. Wow. Great. Um, I just want to remind folks we have volunteer openings. One of them is to be one of the speaker coordinators or program committee and um, other positions you can see appreciate about. Yeah, I'll echo that. We, um, we're working on a service position uh, document so you can see the different positions that are available. And for people online, we would love it if we could every week have a Zoom host, a co-host on Zoom, someone who could help monitor the, the chat and um, make sure the Zoom bombers stay out and that kind of thing. So um, really, just like in Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs, service is sort of at the heart of it. So you feel so much more a part of the community when you become um, someone doing service. So. Uh, and if you feel freaked out about the idea of it, don't worry. We have training and we have uh, encouragement and help. So and snacks um, and snacks. <laughs> so please don't hesitate if you feel like uh, stepping up and being of service to our sangha. Um, just yeah, contact me and I'll I'll get you started. Jim. Yeah, I have two recommendations. Um, Bill Charles and I will be singing with the Samson's Choral Society. This coming Friday at Davies, we're doing um, a, a, a Ukrainian requiem by Ivan Shatinsky. It's wild. Uh, it's got fierce Cossack energy. And, um, <laughs> but the main line is a Mozart requiem, which is simply one of the pillars of Western civilization. And I highly recommend it. And it's the most reasonable concert price um, around. Jim, so, say again, when, when is This Friday, this coming Friday. At David, Davis? Yes, yeah, Davis, yeah. Um, also, last night I saw, um, it had been recommended uh, a movie called 13 Lives about the rescue of the kids in the, in the flooded cave. Mm -hmm. And it, it was the most vivid depiction of a Buddhist culture I've ever seen, um, responding to uh, British divers. And, and um, I, was quite, I was quite struck that I had never really seen that before in the movie. And, I think it's on Hillside. 
Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Thank you. Any other announcements, recommendations? I have a recommendation. Um, there's an incredible uh, one-person play of the uh, Mahabharata, which mm -hmm. is being performed now um, at Project Arto. No, the Z space. At the Project Z space. Project the old name. Right, at Z space, which is in the Project Arto building on uh, Florida Street. It's the Open Theater Project. Um, is putting it on, but it is being performed in San Francisco. Um, we, I went, um, a group of us went on uh, Friday, and it's the most mesmerizing storytelling that I've ever witnessed. Oh, wow. It's playing for one more week. So tonight and four, four, um, four performances next weekend. Yes. Uh, one last announcement. Um, there are still spaces in the group tour that a friend and I are taking to India, November 11th through 25, um, to South India. Two other GBF members are already going. Um, you can see me for information. Thanks. Okay. Um, oh, I forgot to see uh, who's on for next week. Um, pull it up real quick. All right, next week, uh, oh, Donald Rothenberg. Rothenberg's coming here, okay. Uh, <laughs> a member of the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock Center and the teacher of the East Bay Meditation Center. He teaches retreats, groups on concentration and insight meditation practice, loving kindness practice, transforming the judgmental mind, mindful communication, working skillfully with conflict, and socially engaged Buddhism. He has been practiced insight meditation since 1976 and stops it. <laughs> um, so come back next week. And we, uh, would you like to do the dedication of merit? Um, sure. Um, yes. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe we'll, um, well, yeah, that's the mic. Actually, yeah, that's the mic. just be aware of that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> This is very familiar to me. <laughs> uh, we dedicate the merit of our practice to all beings in the ten directions, past, present, and future. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.